Thank you, uh, Deacon uh, Brian, for reading God's Word for us. And uh, thank you, Lynn, for leading us in songs. And uh, you may not see them, uh, but I also want to thank the video team and the audio team who are here today with us um, doing this uh, recording. Uh, we continue a series of studies that we are doing from Exodus. And uh, this afternoon, we are looking at chapter 23, the uh, second portion. Uh, until the entire chapter uh, 24. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to uh, please uh, leave it open uh, in those uh, chapters. Now, we are all familiar with contracts before subscribing to your phone service, to your internet service, media service. You would have read one or a few pieces of documents, and usually it's in fine print. You would have read them before you sign on the line at the bottom. You read them, don't you? And so you must be familiar with the different parts of a typical contract. You will have, firstly, the preamble. The preamble contains the identity and the description of the parties who are coming into agreement. Then you have a section that is called stipulations or actions. This section specifies what is expected of both parties in the agreement. Stipulations, they kind of spell out the conditions and the requirements. Then there is a part called sanctions. So in the event that one party fails to fulfill its obligation, what are the penalties? And now we usually do not pay much attention to the sanctions part until, say, your power company announces in the news that it is folding up. So what are the sanctions? Uh, then at the bottom of the contract, you have the signature. Signatures signifying the agreement of the parties and thereby the ratification of the contract. Now, there are, of course, many other parts of a typical contract. The ones that I mentioned um, uh, are just for simplification because I am a preacher and not a lawyer. Today's passage takes us to two parts found in a typical contract, stipulations and finally the signatures. The whole contract, a.k.a. God's covenant with Israel, actually starts in Exodus chapter 19, and then it ends in 24. So if you missed the sermon on Exodus 19, you should go back and listen to it. Now the six chapters, 19 to 24, narrate for us how God is making His covenant with Israel. And so in chapter 19, we have the preamble portion, the identities and the descriptions of the two parties in the covenant. So party number one, first party, is the Lord Almighty. What's the description? The description is this. He is the Redeemer. He rescued Israel out of Egypt single-handedly, like an eagle carrying its young on top of its wings. Party number two, the house of Jacob, a.k.a the people of Israel. Description, they are the redeemed, the Lord's would-be treasured possession, the holy people, and whom the Lord is now making a covenant 
with. So preamble in chapter 19. Then chapters 20 to 23 contain the stipulations, the actions. They list down what party number one requires of party number two, what the Lord expects of his people. And the stipulations are presented in the form of apodictic laws. We've already learned that. Apodictic laws are laws that begin with do's and don'ts. And also casuistic laws, laws that are in force in case of this and in case of that. Now, both these laws would govern the people's relationship with the Lord and the people's relationship with one another. So today we look at the second part of Exodus 23. It is still on stipulations. But the last part of this chapter focuses on what the redeemed, which is party number two, what the redeemed can expect from the Redeemer, party number one, according to the contract. So what is Israel gaining from the Lord's covenant? What happens when God seals his deal with the house of Jacob? Well, first point, and the slide comes up, when the Lord makes a covenant with his people, their enemies become God's enemies. So the Lord tells them in 23, verse uh, 22. He says, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, we all have heard the saying, your enemy's enemy is your good friend. But for Israel, they have it better. Their enemy's enemy is the Lord Almighty. That is what stipulated in God's covenant. It's a good deal. So how is the Lord going to oppose their enemies? How is he going to act as an enemy to their enemies? Well, firstly, next slide, God is sending an angel to escort them to the promised land. So chapter 23, verse 20 tells us, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. With an angel accompanying them, they have a dauntless protector. They have an invincible warrior too. So 2023 tells us, when my angel goes before you, and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. So these passages tell us that God will use his messenger to destroy Israel's enemies. They only needed to obey. And so twice the charge to obey is given. And you ju we just read that. Pay careful attention to the angel and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, verse 21. And carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, verse 22. Since the angel is God's servant and messenger. So how is the Lord an enemy to Israel's enemies? Well, he will send an angel with them. Secondly, God will terrorize the enemies. 
So chapter 23, verses 27 to 28 tells us, God says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. So the Lord is going to give the enemies panic. Their hearts will be gripped with fear. The Lord will use hornets too. You know, I've been stung by a bee, and thankfully it's just a bee, not a hornet, because bees uh, can only sting once, and after that, it drops dead. But a hornet, I was told, can sting multiple times, and they do not drop dead. Their sting can cause death from anaphylaxis. That is a terror that God will send to Israel's enemies, panic and hornets, in order to drive them out. Yet, just in case Israel thinks that God is slow in keeping his promise, chapter 23, verses 29 to 30, slide comes up, God says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. So have you watched David Attenborough's The Year Earth Changed? The Year Earth Changed. It showed footage taken from different parts of the world to reveal what changed during a worldwide lockdown brought about by the pandemic. And so we see from that uh, documentary that streets were empty. The air somehow cleared up. And when the narrator took us to Umpulamanga, South Africa, to an empty hotel with no tourists, well, we spotted new guests, new hotel guests. That is, uninvited guests. Monkeys were enjoying the swimming pool. Antelopes were grazing in the field. And while the uh, cameraman was shooting, a leopard slowly walks into the resort in broad daylight. It looked around. It looked at the cameraman. And in close proximity, it walked past the cameraman slowly. And those few seconds, according to the cameraman, now tops the list of his most frightening moments. You could actually see him tear up in relief after the leopard left. That is what happens when a place suddenly becomes desolate. Wild animals like the leopard, the leopard, the bear, the lion, they become the inhabitants. They will multiply, and soon they will outnumber and endanger humans. And so God, he has good reason not to drive out the Canaanites at all, all at once in a year. God is not slow, but he is wise. And so the next time you wonder why the Lord is slow in removing your oppressive boss 
God could be thinking about you for your own good so that you will still have a job, perhaps. God is not driving away Israel's enemies in a snap. It's going to be gradual because God cares about Israel's survival. When God seals his deal with Israel, when he makes his covenant with them, he is going to send an angel to guard Israel and fight for their enemies. He will terrorize the enemies and drive them out because God will be their enemy's enemy, which is why it only makes sense that, next point, Israel is to avoid making a covenant with their enemies. I mean, it's a no-brainer, isn't it, to yoke oneself with God's enemies and invite God to be your enemy. That is utter foolishness. To embrace their gods, that defies common sense. But the Lord somehow needed to spell it out under the stipulations. Chapter 23, verses 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So you see what God is doing here? The Lord is warning them. It's a scam. Their deal is sus in youth lingo, suspicious. Don't fall for it, God tells them. Don't make a covenant with them. And the Lord provides reasons. Chapter 23, verses 25 to 26. He says, You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Now we all know the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So if you adapt that to Israel, there's a temptation that when in Canaan, do as the Canaanites do. When in Canaan, there's the allure of worshipping Baal to ensure a good harvest. When in Canaan, there's, uh, there's temptation to follow the pagan practice to serve the goddess Asherah to guarantee fertility. That is why the Lord reminds Israel here in chapter 23, 24, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. God's people is to avoid making deals with God's enemies because the Lord, he hates two-timers. He hates affairs. That's why he says, you shall serve the Lord your God. For the Lord is the one who shall look after their health, guarantee their fertility, and assure them of harvests. Because when the Lord seals his deal, you can always rely on his promises. He's on your side. He'll look after you. He'll provide for you. Not his enemies. Enemies, they'll just scam you. 
They'll just lay a snare before you. They'll just seduce you and steer you, and steer you away, far away from God. So if I can summarize uh, this point, uh, this part in uh, Exodus chapter 23, in just one apodictic law, it would be this. God is telling them, do not get into bed with God's enemies. It's actually a reiteration of commandments one and two. You shall have no other gods beside me, and you shall not make idols and bow down to them. And now we proceed to Exodus 24, the final chapter of the covenant-making process. Now, if the previous chapter lists stipulations for us, this chapter can be likened to the end portion of a contract, the bottom portion where you have the dotted lines, the signatures, where the chop or the seal is placed. The people involved in the signing of this contract are the personalities that we see in chapter 24, verse 1. You have Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders who are proxies for the people. Now, two activities precede the ratification of the covenant. Number one, Moses, we read, tells the people all the words of the Lord. He reads out the book of the covenant. Secondly, before the ratification, Moses, he builds an altar. He offers sacrifices to the Lord, burnt offerings, peace offerings, just as the Lord has stipulated in Exodus chapter 20. Then Moses, he does something that deserves careful attention. Chapter 24, verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Now, why must we give some attention to the details here? Half of the blood Moses threw at the altar, half of it he placed in basins. Well, you know, I've recently learned how to perfect Belgian waffles ever since uh, my family got a waffle maker. Well, it's not very difficult. Just pay attention to the recipe. The recipe says, for instance, separate the egg yolks from the egg whites. Put all the egg whites in a bowl. Mix egg yolks together with butter and milk. Now, when the recipe says, put all the egg whites in the bowl, you know that something is up. You are not to discard the egg whites because you are going to need them later. And thankfully, I didn't discard the whites, but because sure enough, the instruction that followed was for me to whisk the whites until they stiffen and to be folded onto the batter. When the passage here tells us that Moses set aside half of the blood of the oxen in basins, you know that something is up. The details here must be important. Moses is going to need them later. 
And so what does he do with this remaining blood after he has thrown the other half onto the altar? Moses, he first reads the book of the covenant. That is very likely all the stipulations written for us from chapters 20 to 23. The Ten Commandments, the Apodictic Laws, the Casuistic Laws. Now, after Moses finished reading the terms of the covenant, the people gave their eyes. They agreed. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Chapter 24, verse 7, then Moses, he now goes for the basins, the basins full of blood. And Moses, verse 8, took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You read this and you say, so there goes all those newly washed robes those robes that are spotlessly clean, two days of hard preparation, now all splattered with blood. What is going on here? Now, we are not given an explanation of the meaning of the rites. Why is there throwing of blood on the altar and later on the people? Now, some say, it is an ancient custom that is commonly, commonly part in covenant making take for example blood brothers blood brothers they become so when they let their blood mix to swear unity example is the uh, blood pact between dumbledore and grindelwald in harry potter the blood pact between them made them swear that they won't fight each other blood pack. Now others say that the ritual here, which, is in, which involved the slaughtering of uh, oxen, meant that the covenant is very serious. Breaking it will spill blood. It will mean death for the party who breach the contract. So, which is it? Now no explanation is given here. But then we are told what happens following the rites. Chapter 24, verses 9 following. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, if you recall Exodus chapter 19, if we venture back Exodus chapter 19, the preamble, remember, what other descriptions do we have of the Lord in Exodus 19? Well, we saw that the Lord is holy that no one can dilly-dally approach him and not become toast. The Lord is uh, awfully terrifying. The Lord, or rather the people, needed some preparations to meet the Lord. They needed laundry, boundary, and celibacy. 
They needed to wash their clothes. They needed to observe a set boundary on the mountain and not cross the line. They needed to abstain from sex. Possibly it is to give full devotion to the meeting because this is going to be a solemn event. And when the day of the meeting arrives, there was thunder. There was a quake. There was fire and smoke. And when God spoke, he trumpeted. The loud sound sent jitters. And God warned again and again through Moses. He says, go down and warn the people lest they break through the two lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And again in verse 24, But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So we saw that his voice thunders from the mountain. He descends in fire and smoke. The whole mountain quaked. The people trembled. Even even after they laundered their clothes clean, even after they observed the set boundary, even after they abstained from sex. Laundry, laundry, boundary, and celibacy did not assuage their fear of the Almighty. However, after the sprinkling of the blood on the people, the representatives are invited to come up to the mountain, come up the mountain. There was no longer any danger. There was no more trembling. Furthermore, they saw God. So you ask, how did God look like? Well, we were told there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. So the question is, did they or didn't they see God? Because we know that no man may see God's face and live. And that is why we will learn later on that even Moses would only see God's back. Now, perhaps this illustration helps. You know, a few weeks ago, I watched again Anna and the king. Whenever King Mongkut is to walk past by the people, all his subjects are to kneel with their faces facing the ground. So do they see the king? Yes, they do. That is, they see only his feet walk past them. They see his shadow glide by. They see the king, but they do not lift up their faces to look at the king, unless the king grants them permission to look at him face to face. Moses and his party saw the God of Israel, probably from the same viewpoint of subjects kneeling before a king. They saw his feet. They saw lapis lazuli, sapphire stone on which God stood or upon which his throne was set. These people came so close to the awfully terrifying God 
seeing him even, but verse 11 tells us, God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now we must read this verse slowly. God did not lay his hand on the people. They beheld God. They ate. They drank. There was no hint of terror, no nervousness, no dread. The people even ate and drank. Now, I read of an anecdote of uh, Nelson Mandela. When he was dining out with his bodyguards, he spotted somebody familiar seated at the table across. Mandela requested for this man to dine with him. Mandela ordered food. But boy, this man trembled while trying to eat beside the president. He couldn't utter a word. I bet he even had indigestion. Turns out, this man had been the soldier who tortured Mandela, even urinated on him when he was in prison. Now, seated beside the president, there's terror, there's dread, there's trembling, all because, all because the man was unaware that the president had decided not to count the sins made against him. What's happening here that the people could see God and even eat and drink? No terror, no trembling. Well, it must have something to do with the blood ritual. You see, whenever a sacrifice is made, the blood of the animals is always given to God. And God designated the blood of sacrificed animals as a means of atonement to cover for the sins committed against God. You will read that in Leviticus. Furthermore, blood is at times used to consecrate. We will read later in Exodus chapter 29 of Aaron, Aaron and his sons being consecrated as priests. There, blood from the sacrifice was used to touch Aaron's ear, thumb, and toe. Blood from the altar was used to anoint his garments and his son's garments, and they shall be holy. Blood was used to make holy and to consecrate. And so when Moses threw blood on the altar, there was atonement. When he threw the rest of the blood on the people, there was consecration. They were consecrated. They are now officially a holy people for God. The covenant is now ratified. It's signed. It's sealed. And that is why the representatives can now approach the Lord, see Him, eat and drink, and live to tell what happened. So what do we learn 
Well, when God makes a covenant with Israel, He cleanses them, He consecrates them, and He invites them to draw nearer. And yet that mountaintop experience was only momentary. There's still a boundary that only Moses could cross. Only Moses could go up and take the tablets. We see that a greater mediator than Moses is needed. A greater mediator who has the blood that provides the lasting atonement. A greater mediator who removes any barriers and ushers God's people to the Lord. And this greater mediator comes in the person of God's own Son, Jesus. So you know that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples where he took bread, he broke the bread, he gave thanks to it, he gave thanks to God, and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then Jesus took a cup and said, Drink of it. Matthew chapter 26, 28, slide comes up. Drink of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So in giving his life, Jesus seals a new covenant with us, where his blood cleanses us from all sin and brings us to God. Not for a moment, but for eternity. When the Lord makes his new covenant with us, mediated by Jesus, he forgives us, he makes us holy, and he draws us to himself. Because Jesus is the greater mediator than Moses, the mediator of a new covenant, and whose sprinkled blood washes us clean once and for all. Now, I do not know about you, but when I read of the reps going up the mountain and seeing God and eating and drinking, the account is meant to uh, whet our appetites. We ask, when can we have a meal with the Lord our Redeemer? When can we see God face to face and not die? Well, the answer is, we will. When Jesus returns to usher the new heaven and the new earth. We will when he invites us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We see that in Revelation chapter 19. But for now, here's an instruction for the waiting. Next slide. The Apostle John tells us, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's an instruction, friends, but it's also a rebuke. Why desire to have a meal with God when you won't even have a loving meal with his image bearers? 
with one another. So tell me, do you have a list of people whom you would pay to have a meal with? How about a list of people you'd avoid having a meal with? I'm sure we all do have that list, don't we? God, forgive us. We all can't see God for now, but this momentary limitation can be good for all of us. We cannot see God, but we see his image bearers, fellow people made in God's image. And if we love one another, God lives in us. His love is made complete in us. May God help us. Let us pray. We give thanks, Father, for the new covenant that you've made with us. We give thanks for Jesus, your Son, our great mediator. His blood purchased us from our sins and reconciles us to you. Oh, grant us, we pray, grant us enabling through your Son to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and to love our neighbors who are all created in your image. Enable us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.